My bad, sorry. <sighs> you think after 20 years I'd know how to do this. Um, <clears throat> this is the eighth sermon uh, in a series of nine sermons uh, I will be preaching. Uh, so the last five chapters of the book of Judges forms a kind of double epilogue uh, from the main narrative of the six judges and their cycles that we've looked at. So these six major judges, we, we saw this sort of spiraling down uh, into chaos. And so the last five chapters uh, is a kind of, uh, here's what happened now after the judges. Chapters 17 and 18 tell one story about a Levite and the tribe of Dan, as you heard. And chapters 19 through 21 then tell a second story about, a, again, a diff, another Levite, but uh, with the tribe of Benjamin. So that's for next week. Uh, John Herkus has a book called God is God, and he says this about Judges chapter 17 and 18. He writes, in all my life so far, and that's most of it, I have never heard a single reference from pulpit or songwriter or study leader or anybody else at all, never one single tiny whispered sound that related to the Micah of the book of Judges. The reason is, that the story is so crazy, so mixed up, that obviously the parsons and clerics are too embarrassed by it to let out a single peep. It's true. I have never whispered a single peep about Micah um, until now. So this is probably the only time I will preach on this text. It's probably the only time you will ever hear a sermon or uh, do a Bible study uh, on this. And so um, if this is the only time you're ever going to visit our church, uh, I don't know if that's congratulations or uh, um, it's going to be an unusual reading. So I know it was a a bit of a long reading today, uh, but it began with the familiar refrain. There was no king. There was no authority during this time. No law, no morality, no judge at this point now, and no God. And we're told further that the tribe of Dan has no home. They have no land. And so maybe we might feel some sympathy toward them. But this is a situation they've created largely for themselves. Judges 1.34 tells us the tribe of Dan failed to drive out the Amorites when they entered the promised land. And they were forced to live away from the good lands, from the plains. So what they might have done at this point is to call out to God for help. But they don't. Instead, they take matters into their own hands and they decide to send out five spies to find suitable land to live in far from where they currently reside. They do what Moses and Joshua did in the sending of the spies, except, and this is a big except, Moses and Joshua did it in conjunction with God's command. There is no such effort to consult God here. The spies go far north to a city named Laish, beyond the boundaries of the promised land. It's described as quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth. I mean, it's it's like a perfect piece of land. Three times the city is said to be unsuspecting. They are far from... Sidon and the Sidonians and other possible allies and military aid. Their land is described as being quiet. It's the same word that was used to describe the land having rest, 
after they were delivered by one of the judges. The very thing that now has been absent since Gideon. And so 600 armed men go and they burn the city down. They rename it Dan and they settle in it. That's what you heard. Um, There are two more verses to the chapter which I asked my wife not to read because it's a bit of a surprise. So the chapter ends with these two verses. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made, and it was long in the house of God, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. That's supposed to be a little bit of a shock. This Levite, who was unnamed throughout chapters 17 and 18, who was wandering around and out of place, who took a job to be a private priest to Micah, who was willing to work in a house full of idols, even though he's a Levite, who gave vague words of God, who wrongly encouraged the spies, who jumped then joyfully at the first opportunity to betray his employer so that he could get to be a priest of a larger congregation, who set up an unsanctioned rival place of worship using stolen idols to compete with the rightful place of worship in Shiloh. This guy, his name is Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. That's supposed to be like, whoa. In fact, some of the early scribes, when they were transcribing this text, they couldn't handle it. And so they actually inserted the letter N into the name of Moses to change the name to Manasseh instead of Moses. And Manasseh was an evil king, so they were much more comfortable with that. They did not want to have this idea that he could possibly be related to Moses. But this is what's happened. The time of Judges has gotten so bad that even the name of Moses, the hallowed name and memory of the great Moses, even that has been ruined. That's how bad it is now in the time of Judges. There is no God. There is no king. And everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. I want to make just two reflections with you today on this passage. The first is that, you know, the Danites warn me, they remind me how easy it is, how tempting it is to manipulate God's word to fit into my own agenda. I think hearing today's story as hearing the the whole of God's word, including parts of the scriptures that make us uncomfortable or that we are unfamiliar with, I think it's helpful because it it will help us to not selectively pick texts to support our own preconceived notions about what God is like. It's easy to judge people for going and serving foreign gods after the Baals and Asherahs. We see this throughout scripture. But that's not what the people of Israel are doing right now. They are worshiping God. Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
but they've become so compromised with their neighbors that they don't even recognize how corrupt their worship has become. Most of you are not going to decide one day to wholly abandon Christianity, but you will be daily tempted to water down your commitments so that it becomes barely indistinguishable from the sort of nominal deism that characterizes American Christianity. Instead of engaging thoughtfully and critically and theologically with political correctness, with religious pluralism, with postmodern relativism, with atheistic psychology, with scientific materialism, and other cultural trends and modern ideas, you will be tempted to compromise and merge those ideas in a way that misshapes God, that tames God into an American God. The great danger of idolatry is not that you will go and bow down to some weird idol god, but that you will slowly become culturally corrupted and compromised in your understanding and worship of God as it happened to the Israelites in the time of the judges. When the five spies asked Jonathan to inquire of God whether their mission would be successful, he gave them a very ambiguous answer. He said, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. They interpret that as God's blessing. It doesn't occur to them that the message, go in peace, doesn't mean go and destroy the city. It's just the opposite. Yet they interpret this as God wants us to go and destroy this defenseless city. When Jonathan said that their, their, um, the journey is under the eye of the Lord, it doesn't mean that they're being blessed, that God you know, is condoning their actions. It simply means that all their actions, all that they do, is under the careful view of God. They have an answer that they wanted to hear, and that's all they hear, and they take the words to mean what they wanted to hear. You know, before coming to this church, I served as a youth pastor at three uh, different churches. In two of those churches, the first question the youth asked me was, how long are you staying? That was the first question I got. How long are you staying? They had, some of these kids had had so many different youth group pastors go through that they wanted to know if I were going to stay long enough to make it worth their time to have any sort of investment or relationship with me. That's a fair question. I think that's a good question. But in the third church, the first question I got caught me by surprise. Some of the youth group leaders asked me the first question, is it okay to date their previous youth pastor had told them that they should not date, especially if they were serving in leadership. Not realizing I was being trapped, I said, yeah, it's okay to date. And then I tried to frame that remark within certain limits. But all they heard was yes. Our new youth pastor says, it's okay today. He gave us permission. This is what 
we do. Those of you with children, you know this. They'll ask one parent, is it okay for me to watch TV right now? And you say, no. Then what do they do? They go to the next parent. And if the two parents have not agreed beforehand and you're not on the same page, you know it's a mess. And the parents get into an argument and then the kids get to kind of sneak off and watch TV. (laughs) The spies and the tribe of Dan did not need to ask the Levite about their mission. God had already told them to not do this. They were going to do it regardless of what Jonathan said. They were just, you know, they just wanted one more affirmation to sort of put their mission under the guise of God's blessing. This is our danger. We are all prone to interpret God's word to our liking so that God is always behind us whatever we do and we are always the good guys. But if God is always in agreement with you, that should immediately raise multiple red flags. Not every word of God should simply affirm what you have already decided to do or what you think. There should be words of God that force you to make difficult changes, that rebuke you to repent, that challenge you to rethink some thoughts, that encourage you to forgive, that move you to serve, to empower you to risk, to cause you to be uncomfortable, to draw you to receive grace, to humble you toward thankfulness, to lead you to praise. There ought to be a word that disagrees with you. I think we need to have this this constant attitude of asking God, what does God want of me today in this situation, in this relationship, unlike the Danites who just want a word to confirm what you already know, we need to submit ourselves under the word of God and to, to really listen, to really listen and to be obedient to the word that we hear. Second reflection I want to make is this. The Danites, again, warn me and remind me not to confuse material comforts and success as a sign or as a reward of my spiritual obedience. We must not confuse or equate material comforts and worldly success with spiritual obedience. Um, You know, when I was a kid, my sisters and I would get up very early every Saturday morning to watch cartoons all morning. And um, we had to get up very early in the morning because in those days, um, you couldn't just watch whatever you want on demand. And even though we had the technology to record programs on uh, VHS tapes, uh, we only had like one videotape. And my dad would record like football games on it, and so we couldn't use it to you know, erase it. And so we had to get up and we had to watch whatever was being broadcast at the time. So we'd get up uh, every Saturday morning and, and, we'd, and we'd you know, watch cartoons all morning. And um, throughout the morning uh, cartoons, there would be scattered throughout the morning these little catchy um, 
cartoon music videos made by Schoolhouse Rock. I think some of you, I hope, are familiar with, with what that is. You know, they, they were great. We love those, right? You learn about the history of the 19th Amendment, right? You learn about figure eight and the magic number three. You learn about how a bill becomes a law. You learn about the function of a conjunction. I mean, we love those. They're so educational and fun. Well, one of the songs that wasn't quite, you know, uh, didn't play a lot, as I recall, was a song called Elbow Room. It's a song about the expansion of the United States, about how the country, as it grew in numbers, they needed more elbow room, and so the country expanded west. And um, in it are these lyrics. The way was opened up for folks with bravery. There were plenty of fights to win land rights, but the, mess, but the West was meant to be. It was our manifest destiny. It was manifest destiny, this expansion outward to get more elbow room for the people who are feeling a little crowded on the East Coast. It's a cheerful tune. It's an optimistic message. The song goes on to say that, you know, when we need even more room, we can just keep finding more room because we can just keep further expanding out west. And if we run out of space on Earth, then, well, we'll go to the moon and there'll be plenty of elbow room up in the moon. Um, you know, my sisters and I, we, we, you know, we'd be watching TV, we'd be lying on, on the floor, and as we're singing along, we're like elbowing each other, like, I need more elbow room, right? I mean, we, we loved it. We, we bought the message, you know, like, this is great, you know? Um, we are all going to need more elbow room, and we're all going to share in it. Uh, you know, we includes everybody. It's just amazing to me how, you know, something like that has just, like, stayed with me all these years. Uh, I don't think I've seen or heard that since I was in high school, you know. Um, but I realized this is a song that the Danites could have written. We just need some more elbow room, and we went and got it. It was our manifest destiny. God blessed it. There's no mention, of course, how many innocent, unsuspecting, peaceful, at-rest people were displaced or wiped out so that one small group of people in disobedience to God could get a little more elbow room for themselves. The Danites ignore their allotted territory in the promised land that God had given to them and instead chose to attack a defenseless city out of bounds, out of the boundary of the promised land that had been given to the Israelites. They ignore or are unaware of number of God's laws, including Deuteronomy 20, which required that cities far from Israel were not to be attacked but were to be offered peace first. They ignore other rules in Deuteronomy that said that if war is necessary, then only the men were to be engaged in battle and that children and livestock were to be left unharmed. Later in Ezekiel 38, God says that it is an evil to attack a defenseless city. The land was spacious. The land was spacious. The Danites could have worked out some sort of deal with them, negotiated a peace to share the land or something. But no such effort was made. They neglect God's word. They abandon all honor and cowardly destroy an unsuspecting defenseless people and take their land under the guise of holy war. You know, up until now, 
most of the violence committed by Israel has been a defensive war in retaliation for the oppression of their enemies. But now they have become like their neighbors. They become the bullies, brutally taking what does not belong to them. Everyone doing what was right in their own eyes and might makes right in the time of the judges. It's hard to hear about the Danites and not be reminded about what has happened throughout human history of empires continuously butchering and subjugating peoples, unsuspecting, at rest peoples. And worst, justification being made using the name of God. Now, I know there are, there are a number of difficult passages in the scriptures about how God can, you know, commands the destruction of, of peoples in Canaan. And, and we're rightfully uncomfortable with those passages. And it is hard to reconcile the God of mercy and love and justice with some of those directives. But I want to be very clear about what's happening here in this text. The atrocities committed by the Danites are not sanctioned by God. This is not commanded by God. God is not involved in these actions at all. The Danites take this action entirely on their own. They are not acting like the people of God. They were unwilling to fight the Amorites when they had the chance. They were unwilling to join Barak and Deborah when they were called to battle Sisera. They were unwilling to support Samson, their Danite judge. Instead, they attack a defenseless city precisely because it is defenseless. And their tactics are just as underhanded. They march toward the city with their children and their livestock in the front to make it appear as though that they are just a harmless group of wanderers. They put their children in harm's risk to gain the element of surprise. This is not a battle. This is it's just, it's just a massacre. They steal land just as they had stolen Micah's idols and his Levite. Their actions are indefensible. But here's the thing. From the perspective of the Danites, it looks like God is blessing them. Their attack resulted in a very quick and glorious victory. They got some nice land for themselves and their families. So God must be prospering us. We won. It's just like what Micah had said. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So they bring along the same Levite. My success must mean that God is on my side and approves my actions. But as I mentioned last time, just because you selfishly pray for something and it comes true, it does not mean that God answered it. Or that God somehow condones those actions. It doesn't. We all know that sinful acts can lead to worldly success. The Danites had abandoned God. Their God allotted territory. They consulted with the Levite who had abandoned his allotted residence. Who inquired of God at a shrine of idols. An idol made from stolen money expressly forbidden and attacked a defenseless city. I mean, that is not 
God's will. That is not God's desire for his people. You know, sometimes people get cheating. Sometimes they don't. Either way, it's sin in God's eyes. In Micah's case, the thief eventually got robbed. But in the case of Jonathan, things worked out pretty well, at least in his lifetime and for several generations later. His family got set up as priests of the Danites. And the Danites too. They, they made out well. They got land. No one in this story acted with kindness, with integrity, with compassion. But they all got a lot of earthly goods out of it. And so they think God is on our side. But it's not true. It doesn't mean that God blessed them, that God is pleased, nor does it mean that God doesn't care. Ultimately, judgment will come. Eventually, you reap what you sow. Verse 30 says that Jonathan and his sons were priests until the day of the captivity of the land. The writer of Judges is looking back now. He's writing about a time that's already passed. And as he looks back to the story of the Danites, he's looking from the vantage point of having been taken into captivity. The land has been defeated by the Assyrians. They're living in captivity or they've already gone through that experience. So the land has been taken back. People have been killed. They've lost their land. They've lost their God. It's come back. And so here the narrator is subtly telling us that God will judge and that eventually, eventually, the actions of the Danites will lead to loss of their lands, their families, to a life of captivity and death. You know, I know some people just don't care what happens after, right? You don't care about your legacy or your children or your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You don't care about what happens to the earth after you're gone. You know, it's just, I'm going to use whatever I want. Who cares what happens? When I'm dead, I don't care what happens anymore. As long as I'm comfortable, I don't care about future generations. Maybe like the Danites, you know, you want to just follow like in Samson's footsteps. Just do what you want to do, what's easy, and justify your actions. Because you succeed, therefore God must be blessing me. Instead of battling the hard fight with the Amorites in obedience to God, you take the shortcut and attack a defenseless city and look to your comforts, your worldly successes, as a sign of God's pleasure. Don't. Don't do that. I know the temptation is always to look for an easier way and somehow think that God is pleased and blessing you. You do less and less for God. You seek God less diligently, and nothing bad happens to you. And in fact, because you're spending less time at church or in spiritual matters, you get to do other things, and so you have more material success, and so you think that this is God's blessing me and God approving my way of living. It's not. It's not. Isn't there some shortcut to maturity and spirituality? 
No, there isn't. Do I really have to pray every day and read the Bible? Yes, you do. Can I just come once a week to church and get my weekly fill-up? No, you can't. Can I just love God on my own without joining a church? No, you can't. Can I just cheat a little bit on my tests, my taxes? No. It's so hard to make it to church every week. Can I just stay home and listen to a sermon instead? No, you can't. Do I really have to stand up and sing? Yeah, you do. Do I really have to reach out to people that I don't know and don't like? Yeah. You do. The Bible's pretty clear on a lot of stuff. It's very clear. And we can't just kind of pick a verse here and twist it to fit our needs, to make us more comfortable. Jesus said, discipleship is not easy. There's a way that looks easy and is broad, but it leads to death. The way is narrow and hard that leads to life. Don't assume, don't confuse your comforts with God's blessing. You know, J- Jonathan is a Levite. He's supposed to know better. He's supposed to lead the people in the right ways of God. You know, even his name means Yahweh has given, but, he's, but he doesn't receive anything. He, he takes And this whole story is about taking. He's an opportunist, taking the opportunities that present to him to to move ahead, right? Instead instead of um, receiving what God has given and wants to give to him, he takes whatever opportunities to advance his own career. He abandons Micah and his family to become the priest of a whole tribe instead of just, just one family. And, and again, if you, if you look at that, it's a good career move, right? He has a much more, he has a larger congregation, potentially much more influence. It looks good. It's successful. God must be blessing me, rewarding me with this promotion. You know, um, my guess is that I've, I've preached over a thousand sermons uh, in my life, most of them here. Um, and I know that you don't remember 99% of what I've preached. And that's fine, because frankly, I don't remember 99% of what I've preached. But I'm also confident that, I've, that 99% of my messages were the same message, so, so there. And, you know, I'm not sure how many sermons I've heard uh, in my lifetime, live sermons in worship in my lifetime, but I can tell you that of the hundreds of sermons I must have heard, um, I only remember a very few handful of them. And one of them that I will never forget uh, is a sermon that was given by uh, Dr. Um, Thomas Gillespie, who was at the time president of Princeton Seminary. And uh, I heard this uh, while I was a student there in the early 90s. And uh, in the sermon, he talked about visiting with a minister um, in Eastern Europe. And the pastor there uh, was ministering to a very small church, maybe six or seven people left in this church. It used to be a, a much bigger church. Uh, six or seven elderly people 
And this minister uh, was the pastor there. And a lot of people thought, you know, this minister was like, he was really great. I mean, he had great sermons. He, he was, you know, highly respected. And a lot of people said to him, you should leave this place. There are all these bigger churches, places where you can be more influential, right? Where you can go and like really make a difference instead of ministering to this, you know, six, seven people. And you know, they're elderly. You're just waiting for them to die to do their funerals. That's all you're doing here, right? You should not waste your enormous talents with this handful of people. I don't remember the precise words, but the minister basically said that he wasn't called to be more significant or to be more impactful, that that was not God's call in his life, but that he was called to be faithful to the flock that he had been given. And so that's why he stayed. And that was it. And Dr. Gillespie then used that story to warn us young seminarians about the dangers of hearing God's call to advance our careers. He remarked how it seemed odd to him that whenever ministers heard God's call to move to a different church, it was always to a bigger church, to a higher paying church or to a larger congregation. Why was it, he wondered, that so few ministers ever heard a call to remain or to go to a smaller place, less influential place? I don't know why, but you know, that, that sermon or that, that illustration has always stayed with me. You know, as, as you know, um, most of my friends are ministers. It's, you know, it's an occupational hazard. Um, and I've, I've, I've known my share of colleagues who treat ministry like, like any other job, uh, with ambitions to you know, climb this clerical ladder, if you will. And so maybe this passage speaks more to me and to, to other ministers because it involves a, a priest who makes some uh, questionable decisions. But I would argue that you know, we believe in the priesthood of all believers— And we are all called to ministry. And so I think the actions and the lessons of Jonathan, the Levite, applies to all of us here today. I don't know if you feel like you have some temptation to do something more important in ministry because you think, you know, working with sprouts is not important enough, right? That maybe I'll start with sprouts and then I'll move to tots, then I'll move to the kids, then I'll move to the youth group, and finally I can teach the adults. Like, I hope you're not thinking that. What is God calling you? Or to whom is God calling you? And can you be obedient to that? Can you endure the hardships of that ministry and remain committed? Can you give yourself fully to that? Now, this is not to suggest that, you know, you don't explore other ministries, but that you ought to be faithful to the calling that you have and to serve as faithfully as you can. The desire to be faithful, I mean, I think that's a good ambition, to serve more faithfully. That's a good ambition. 
But we have to guard against these false spiritual ambitions to seek more significance, more importance. And I think this applies really broadly to, to life, not just about church ministry. You know, I'm not going to offer any sort of career advice to you, but I know that just because a job offers more money, it doesn't mean that that's God's will for your life. I know that. I know it's easy to get caught up in pursuing ever more greater riches in your life. And I know, you know, you, you can justify that, like, I want more opportunities for my kids, you know, I want, I want to provide for my family and my parents. Like, I, I get that. I know it's easy to think that way. And it may be true. It may be true. And maybe God is going to bless you that way. I just wonder, as Dr. Gillespie did, why is it that we always think God's blessing always moves us toward greater earthly, worldly goods. Most of us have far more than we need, far more than most of the world. We have enough. Be careful not to equate worldly success with God's affirmation of your decisions, no matter how you get, the, how you get there. Instead, test yourself against God's word. Is this leading me to love God more? Is this going to help me love other people more? Do I find greater pleasure in worshiping God through this decision? Am I growing through this decision? Growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Because then maybe even the struggles you are having that lead you Downward, materially, is God's blessing. Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we, um, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the... Uh, the examples, the hard examples in the book of Judges. And so, God, we ask that you would help us. Uh, We want to be right before you. We want our lives to be acceptable in your sight. We know that you have made that possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who died for us. And in light of that truth, God, help us to live in such a way That we do not twist your words for our own advancement, but to think about how does this help others? How does this bring glory, greater glory to you? Help us to live in such a way that we are faithful to your whole word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.